Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host, and welcome to season two. This is from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions. Why are Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements important? The teaching of U.S. history in schools, museums, and the media has left out many voices and difficult truths in order to create an idealized nationalistic identity. The displacement of indigenous peoples and the devastating effect that forced relocation has had on these communities has been largely hidden within the nationalistic narratives. While many indigenous nations have treaties with the United States government that designate land ownership, most only have rights to occupancy. Often the land on which indigenous nations and communities reside is not the land to which they have ancestral ties. So many have experienced dispossession and displacement through colonialization. However, the connection to homelands has endured by means of multiple and ongoing indigenous strategies of resistance to settler colonialism. This connection is often central to cultural identity and worldview. The examples of Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline and the shrinking of the Bears Ears National Monument demonstrate that relationships to place and identity persist. The settler colonial state continues to struggle in the recognition of inherent indigenous sovereignty and respect for homelands. Again, that is from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions. You can find a link for that on our website. Last week, I mentioned that Renell Schubert, our producer, was born on the unceded territory of the Kickapoo, known now as Nashville, Illinois. There are three major Kickapoo communities in the United States. The Kickapoo tribe of Kansas has been in its present area of Horton, Kansas, since the 1832 Treaty of Castor Hill. The Tribal Enrollment Office reports a total membership of 1,610 members as of October 2018. The mission of the Kickapoo tribe in Kansas is to enhance the quality of life for the tribe, its members, and its community, while preserving its culture and retaining its right to self-governance by protecting tribal sovereignty and its assets. Language revitalization is essential to the reclamation of culture and identity for many indigenous communities. To that end, on their website, the Kickapoo tribe of Kansas offers a set of language playing cards and youth books available for all tribal members. Visit their website, which you can find on our show's page, to learn how you can support these efforts. In this episode, I speak with filmmaker and educator Victoria Thomas. In our conversation, we chat about her latest project, Born in New York, Raised in Paris, her teaching at the London Film School, the production company she founded called The Republic of Story, and the challenges of navigating a documentary and narrative film industry rooted in a white supremacist work culture that is resistant to change. Because like many Black women, Victoria finds being in these spaces can be taxing and exhausting, to say the least. This episode's song is Destiny Child's Survivor. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in February 2021. Okay, so I always like to start the conversation with um, like how we met. Um, so we met at the Yilava um, Documentary Film Festival in the Czech Republic. And it was my first time in the Czech Republic. And I remember I saw your picture because you were part of the, uh, was it the Emerging Producers Program? And then I also saw like, oh, this is another Black woman here, or this is a Black person. 
Because I think we were probably the only two in that town. Only two, yeah. <laughs> so I made a point to give go to the presentation of the producers. As I, well, I wanted to see like what all the work that was being done. But I'm like, okay, I need to find her and meet her. And then we met at the like the, I think the the closing night party. One of the closing parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember because I had not seen you. Then you sort of came up to me and I, you kind of touched from the back, and then I turned around and like you're the first black person that I saw. And then I feel <laughs> like I think that. Hug each other like we had known each other forever because it's that's like documentary film festivals. It's like right. you can always count the black people in the room. Like I remember one year I was at IFA and people kept on coming to me and saying hi Yvonne and offering me drinks and I had no idea and I'm thinking Victoria but then they're like yes Yvonne and then they were introducing me to people and like it's Yvonne and the people everybody was being very nice to me. Was it Yvonne? They thought you were Yvonne Welber. They thought I was Yvonne Welber and we don't look alike. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> And I'm also taller than Yvonne. So I remember saying to yes. my friend, I bet you there's another black woman around who's called Yvonne. And somebody has said, Yvonne is the black woman. So people are just coming up to me at the party. Eventually I went to a presentation and I saw a black woman coming in wearing glasses. And I went up to her and I said, hi, are you Yvonne? And she looked at me and she said, why? Have people been coming up to you? And I was like, she said, because yeah, I've been told that you know there was somebody that everybody thought was me. And we just burst out laughing because it was like, we do not look alike at all. Because of course she was a chicken and egg at the time. And she was signing checks. People were being nice to me because they thought I had to give them. But documentary festivals are always like that. It's interesting because they also tend to turn to tell a lot of black stories, but rarely are the creators black. So it's always funny how you just never really see black documentary filmmakers now. Exactly, exactly. Well, I remember I, I went to Outfest, um, I think 2017, I was on their documentary jury and um, somebody somebody thought I was like Ava DuVernay. They were telling me like how much they enjoyed my talk on the panel and like all of this. And I'm like, I wasn't on no panel. I mean, and also I get it for Victoria Thomas as well, the casting director. We have the same name, but she's also a black woman. and amount of times where I have been given her badge at film festivals. But it's always the thing where you see the list of invites and then you think like, okay, they've mistaken me for somebody else. And, and, and it's because I think again, she's Victoria Thomas, she's black. So people see a black woman, Victoria Thomas, they're like, she must be the casting director. So again, I could not wait to see what she looked like. And then I saw her photo and I was like, we look absolutely nothing alike. Oh, being be a sister in the documentary community. It's a, it's a thing. So I wanted to ask about like, how did you get into films? And you work on documentary and narrative, but like, what was your gateway into the world? Into the world. So I have always kind of liked telling stories and making films. Mm -hmm. You know, I was one of those kids who made films as a pastime to play. Um, but then I was a journalist back in the 2000s. And I sort of um, stumbled into video news journalism for the BBC in the in West Midlands where I was living at the time. And I saw once I started doing that and I realized I was enjoying it a lot more because of course I trained as a lawyer and I was working in law at the time. But I realized that I was enjoying this sort of midnight moonlighting freelancing shift that I was doing for BBC West Midlands and ITN Central more than I was enjoying my day job. And at that um, but because my background up until that point had been super academic, you know, I had not been to art college, I had studied, you know, accounting, and then went to law school, I felt like I wanted to learn about the film industry. 
So um, I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. And I felt like if I'm going to do this, this is probably the best time to do it. And I also was no longer at an age where I had to ask my parents permission. And so I applied to film school and everybody around me told me I would not get in because my background was so academic. And then I got in. <laughs> okay. What, and what school did you end up going to? It was Screen Academy Scotland. It was a joint venture between um, Edinburgh College of Art and uh, Edinburgh Napier University. So that's when I moved to Scotland. Because I kind of thought, well, I might as well just give it a chance. What's the worst that can happen? I discovered that I don't like it. And then I can just go back to law anyway. So I went, I went to the, the sort of art college and did um, one year MA and then did a two year MFA. And that's kind of how I got in. And then sort of started going to the film festivals. Because I had been doing news, documentary was always something I liked anyway. But the first serious venture into documentary came because, again, when I came in to the industry, I thought I'd be making action movies and thriller movies because I grew up on Bond. But in home school, sort of saying that, you know, Goldfinger was my favorite film meant that I was the laughing stock in the class or, did, or was not artistic enough. I was putting forward all these like white collar crimes, you know, legal thrillers and stuff. And um, I was being told that I didn't have a voice. Uh. And so... One day I made a joke because I realized that actually what the problem was, was the fact that because I was black and female, there were certain stories I was expected to tell mm -hmm. and I wasn't telling them. Mm -hmm. So I made this joke during my tutorial because I had just read something in the paper in the morning about a bunch of um, people in Scotland being kidnapped in Nigeria and the oil rigs because that was something that used to happen a lot. And so I went into the tutorials and I was being facetious and I was just like, oh, I'm going to make a documentary about the Niger Delta where they kidnap people. And my tutor did not realize I was being sarcastic. He jumped into action and he was like, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. You're finally finding your voice. Suddenly he said, putting me forward for a lot of things in documentary to prepare me to go to Niger Delta to make this documentary about people being kidnapped. And it was the first time anybody had taken me seriously as a director. So I just kind of ran with it. I was just like, all right, okay. But the only problem is I didn't know a thing about the Niger Delta or even the kidnappings. Right. You, you just, just, it was because like, it was sarcastic. But it was the story that he believed that I could tell. Mm -hmm. And he didn't believe I could tell any of the legal thrillers, even though I had spent 10 years in the legal world. Right. So it became quite hilarious because then I went on this journey now where I was trying to figure out how to make a documentary about these kidnappings in the Niger Delta. And, and I went really far because I found myself on the phone talking to the rebels because somehow through my connections, I could make contact with these militants. And then I remember it was one of, day my, one of my cousins said to me, you do realize you're an only child, right? So what are you going to do? Uh -huh. Get on a flight to Nigeria and allow some militants to blindfold you and put you in a boat to take you up to the creeks to film them just because you have a film career. And I think that was the time I stopped and realized what I was doing, that I had just allowed these people to get to me so much. Right. That I was just pushing and I got carried away with, because they were putting me forward for everything. So I went to the, like this documentary master school and documentary festivals and all this kind of thing. And then I had to come back and say, I didn't want to do the film because again, I had not been to Nigeria or Africa in like, 20 years at that point. So I really didn't know what I was talking about, but they assumed that I knew because it was an African porn story. And so I, when I then said I was not doing it anymore, everybody was disappointed. I was difficult because they still did not realize that I had no idea. But also just thinking about some of the, the safety concerns, because you don't know the story, you don't know everything that you could potentially be getting yourself into. So that was the first time I became difficult in the eyes of people because I was not letting the site down. But then that kind of opened up my world to the possibilities in documentary.
documentary and I thought, okay, I'll go back to the same people, but with a different story. And that was sort of when I got plugged into the documentary space. And then I co-produced a documentary called Between Rings, which was for a Finnish and a Zambian company. Um, so I want to go back to your, your being a lawyer. And this is like a, a, a question from a silly American. Okay, so do you did y'all have to wear those, those wigs? Like, why do y'all have to do that? You have to wear the wigs in court if you're a barrister. Because in the UK, it's not like America where you are just an attorney. In the UK, you have to choose whether you're a solicitor or a barrister. And barristers are the ones who go to court and have to wear the wigs. Now, historically, apparently, it was just so that you could hide your identity so that people wouldn't know who you were. That was the rationale behind it. And that's the reason why the curls are shaped like the way the aristocrats used to have their hair because a lot of them were the legal system, right? In, in law school, I also got into trouble for making that joke because I asked for a black wig. And do they, I, do they even uh, have black wigs? No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we were supposed to be doing meetings, which are like mock courts, and we're supposed to wear the wig. And so I asked for the wig and I said, the reality is that if I put this on my head, nobody is not going to realize that it's fake because it didn't look like my at all. And I landed in the dean's office for that comment. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's so obvious. Yeah, nobody's going to look at that and think, okay, I don't know who that is. They just go, right. that's, that's a Victoria, this crazy white wig. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, yeah, I just had to ask that. Okay, thank you for explaining that to the Americans. But I want to go back to the first short that you did was a Finnish um, Zambian co-production. Can you talk a little bit of more about that? And particularly like our US-based audiences, they're not really well-versed in the whole concept of co-productions, but I wanted to know how did, were these connections made? It was a feature doc, but the Zambian filmmaker had been studying in Finland. Um, so she met the producer whilst they, while she was studying in Finland and he was in her story. And I think they both got onto Balinali Talents. Um, I think she was on, on the Balinali Talents Durban. And so that, that's kind of where they met, you know, that, that's where the connection was made. But I came into the process because, of course, when you do a co-production between the two countries, Finland and Zambia don't have a co-production treaty. So it was an unofficial co-production but this was the first time filmmaker who had never really dealt with um, European funds. And I don't think she understood what it meant when Finland came in with money because the Finnish producer was able to raise money in Finland for the film entirely. But of course, that meant that um, because it's Finnish public money, you had to have Finnish crew. They had a Finnish co-director. Um, and the IP had to be transferred to his company. For a first-time filmmaker who's never dealt with any of that, that's very alarming, that's very scary, that's the taking of my film. So there was a bit of an impasse in the production. So because I was a lawyer, I was then asked to come on to help to sort out the chain of title. Um, because of course, again, at times filmmakers don't do contracts at the start because they're all friends. And then when the business comes into play, everybody freaks out. So I came in initially as a lawyer. And then after sorting out the chain of title, I was asked to stay on to work as a producer for the Zambian company to help them navigate the European public funding um, landscape. So, and I think that was because I spoke Europe, but I also spoke African in a lot of ways. And then I through that I discovered that there was that niche. And so I then became the go-to for people in Scandi countries trying to do productions in Sub-Saharan Africa because they're quite a few, especially in the space of documentary, right. because there are a lot of documentary slots on their TV channels and they seem to really love stories in Africa. Are there particular countries in Scandinavia that like to do 
co-productions with folks in Africa? And if so, like what particular countries are the specific countries they prefer to work with? I mean, they don't really do co-productions as such because a lot of those kind of documentaries are directed by Scandinavian filmmakers. They go there to get the content. They go there to get the content. So this is a rare opportunity where the Zambian filmmaker was actually a director. And then the compromise was, we'll have the two of you to direct, which also is an opportunity because it got the money, but it's a challenge because when you are an African who's been born and raised in Africa, you see Africa very differently to somebody who's coming from outside and only ever learned about um, Africa on, on television. So then the vision, again, I believe was a little bit compromised as well because nobody really felt ownership of the film. But, you know, in Finland, Sweden, there are quite a lot of um, docs on TV. They're quite open-minded and their filmmakers do do a lot of stuff around the world. Do you think there's been, especially in light of things that have been happening in recent history, do you think there's a move towards some of these Scandinavian countries actually not only just going to get content from the continent, but actually bringing up filmmakers who are um, of African descent or who live on the continent to get them actually involved in the filmmaking process and like empowered in the filmmaking process? I don't know that the conversation is happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> because I think of a lot of these things, um, at times the conversation needs to happen for people to understand that it's necessary because they're just doing it. And they think that if we go there, we're spending money there, or we're hiring a few people, therefore we are helping or we're aligning, right? I think a lot of this, um, I think where the problems really are is in ownership and editorial control. And so a lot of the African stories, the Africans never really have a say in how they're portrayed. And so a lot of times you hear people being disappointed when they watch these films because it was not what they understood from when it was pitched to them. Mm, uh, mm. Scandinavia mm-hmm. certainly is pushing a lot when it comes to diversity and inclusion. I think in a lot of ways, they're, they're more ahead than even the UK. But diversity and inclusion that they're pushing for is more really about gender. It kind of mirrors like the, what's happened in the United States in the past when the Civil Rights Bill was passed, essentially in order to fill that, this is like during the 70s, 80s, to fill the quote unquote diversity quota, you know, they white men would hire like a white woman. I think you also need to remember the, the makeup of the populations in Scandinavia. Yes. So there, there's not a lot of um, non-white people. So... Well, race is not at the top of the DNI agenda because mm. they don't have the same inclusion problems. They have their own inclusion challenges on race for sure. But it's not because again, traditionally a lot of um, black and brown people don't end up in the creative industries because traditionally our families don't encourage careers in the arts as you know the careers to go for. So a lot of people tend to come into the industry after doing one of the more traditional white collar jobs or studies. So I think um, in Europe in general, I think the conversation around race will start up soon in the diaspora, largely because I am spearheading that conversation because I, I find myself as being a citizen of nowhere in cinema because I'm not European enough to be the obvious European person to go to for a European story. And in the European funders, I am not African enough. So now there's a lot of support for African filmmakers from Europe, but they're going to the continent because those in the diaspora are not seen as African enough. But they're not supporting the diaspora that's within the country. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very um, complex story. So I think, um, and, but the thing is what I do find, because I lived in Estonia for a while, I do find that Scandinavian Baltic countries 
are more open to talk about race than say the UK, that's because they're so not experienced in it. So they do feel like they have a lot to learn. Whereas when you're dealing with the UK or France where there's a larger minority population, people can often feel like we, we got this. We don't need you guys to tell us what we need to be doing. We got this. Right. Yet 50 years later, we're still having the same conversations. This is interesting too, that um, like what I found when I've traveled around, when I speak to Europeans or like folks from the South Australia and New Zealand, particularly when I'm refer referring to white folks. So like when I speak to white folks from France, they're very conscientious and very understanding and sympathetic to the plight of like, for example, black folks in the US. But they're very racist toward black and Arab folks in France. And the same thing, like I had conversations with Australians, like, yeah, very sympathetic to like, again, the plight, you know, Black Lives Matter, but then they'll, in their next breath, they'll demean Aborigines, you know, Black folks there. So, um, it's, well, that kind of, and it's really, it's really interesting that, and, and when I'm having these conversations, I'm like, well, don't you see what you're doing? No. <laughs> like, it's so it's obvious. I'm like, oh, and it's, it's. Because um, Europe has done a very good job, and probably Australia, just the Western world, has done a very good job of positing race as an American problem, as an American thing. So everybody feels like it's America that we have to pay attention to, and they don't see what's going on in their backyard. France, for example, is a perfect country where, it's a perfect example of a country where they cannot tell you how many Black people they have or how many Arabs because you're not allowed to speak about race in France. You're not allowed to do a racial census. Like, you can't ask people, um, what's your background? Because that was banned after the Second World War. And the idea was that because in France, everybody's supposed to be French and equally French, which... But they're not treated like fr they're French. It's, it's a great principle, but in real life, it doesn't happen. And they don't necessarily want to... Um, explore that. As you know, I'm doing the documentary Born in New York, Race in Paris, which explores that, that, that otherness in France that, you know, Black and brown people feel and how they use hip-hop lyrics to voice their frustrations. because when the, your constitution says race does not exist, then how are you going to call out racism, you know? So hip-hop is the tool for that. And so the genre grew just because it just became this outlet. A lot of people would listen to French hip-hop in France and love it, but they don't necessarily want to talk about the realities that the hip hop lyrics are talking about. And for the longest time, you know, the government clamped down on the rappers, not because they did anything wrong, but because of their lyrics, because a new law was invented by Sarkozy to make it illegal to offend the dignity of France. What? Yes, and through that law, a lot of rappers were prosecuted just for the lyrics of their songs. They didn't do anything violent, it was just for the lyrics of their songs. So wow. racism, in Europe can be hidden in the UK, you say somebody's racist, they will ask you to prove it. And it's often very difficult because also it's it's a very sophisticated, like there isn't like the kind of overt racism, there's a sort of microaggressions. Yes. You know, like, so it's as simple as if I am late, it'll probably go on my record. If Tony is late, it will not go on Tony's record. You know, people forgive Tony easier than they'll forgive. Yes. But if I that racism, them, it's not racism because, well, you're not supposed to be late, right? So me pulling you up for being late is not me being racist. It's me pulling you up for being late because you're late. And I can't say when Tony was late, you didn't do the same thing because then it's unprofessional to compare yourself to Tony. You know, like there's all that mm -hmm. language that makes it difficult for you. You know, I was recently in a situation where it's in the exact same situation with a white woman. And the treatment that she got was very different to me. 
she was actually a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. So she was telling me, you know, we were both on a scheme where we both walked away from our producers and she got the, it's fine. These things always happen. Don't worry, we want to support you. It's just because you're not getting another producer and the right fit. My um, thing was strict meetings. Well, we cannot afford to have producers walking away. And I'm thinking, and in my case, the producer actually did something wrong. Right. But you get reprimanded for it. You get dressed down for it. The white woman got, don't worry, it's okay. But then how do I call that out in the UK? Because if I say, well, you treated her differently, then it's, well, how did you know? Because it's unprofessional to be talking about. Right. Yes, yes. So that, that's the kind of way it can play out for us. That's why the conversation doesn't like to answer your original question. It's just the fact that race is such a complex thing in Europe because we, we've not had a civil rights movement like America. Right. Right. You've got to remember that because, again, we always talk about the fact that in fact, I was having an argument with some African-Americans on the breakfast show with Charlemagne and others on the comment where they were talking about reparations and, you know, how to track who should get reparations, etc. And I remember saying, you know, slavery is not an American thing. And a lot of people think that slavery is an American thing. But he, no, like, hello, it started, the, the English were the original colonized, like, hello, ask the Irish and ask the Scottish. They still haven't left. When you think about slavery or you think about slavery movies, automatically you have an image of cotton, right? Cotton. Yes, the, the Ameri- yeah, I'm from Georgia, the American South, yeah. But the biggest products during slavery was actually sugar. It was sugar, which was on the Caribbean and, you know, the French territories. And so, but, you know, in the UK, after the abolition, what they did was they lined up all the free slaves because the queen was uncomfortable with seeing black people walking around in London free of charge, and they treated them to West Africa. So the UK cleared, it cleaned UK of all the slaves and took them to Africa, which of course is causing its own problems 300 years later. So we've never had to have to, have to deal with integrating freed slaves into the British system the way America had to which then led to segregation and the civil rights movement. France, the same thing, you know, you know, and when your slaves are in the Caribbean and they're in the Caribbean, they're far, they're not going to come to the UK or to France or the or, or to the ne- Netherlands. So you can just free people in Jamaica or Martinique or St. Martin, just kind of leave them there, right? Hate, well, Haiti rebelled. Yeah. That there's the only successful yeah, revolution. And they, they, I think they're still making them pay for that. Yeah. So because America had to deal with the integration, people always think that slavery is an American thing. And so then... Yes, then the rest of the world is just kind of excused. And so even in Europe, people are like, oh, this American thing, right? Oh, Black Lives Matter, oh. And then you're like, you're treating the, the Black people worse in Paris or uh, in London, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't Yeah, I was, there's this film I saw, and actually Renelle and I were like chatting about it um, last night. It was a film called um, Generation Revolution. Yeah. Uh, and it's about the essentially about the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK. And it was interesting because like I saw that movie and then a few months later I actually went to Hot Docs. Yeah. And I was happened to be meeting with these um two white filmmakers, one from the US, white men male filmmakers, one from the US and one from the UK, who are doing this film. They were framing it almost like a true crime film about this um lynching essentially in Georgia. So in the and I'm from Georgia, okay. So the dude from the US was from New York, the dude from the UK, like born and raised in London. So they show me the trailer, it's incredibly graphic. They're showing all these images of like this man's mutilated body. You know, yo, this is triggering for me as a black woman. Okay, yeah. raised in, uh, in America, okay. Um, so then I pointed this out to them, you know, and I think at the time the film Who Streets was out, that was about Michael Brown's murder and the, and the protests that happened 
around that. And there are scenes where they show, I th they think they show things up to the killing. They don't show the body on the street. Basically they treated Michael Brown's body with, with dignity because there's a way to do that. Mm -hmm. So I pointed this out. They were completely dismissive. Then they said some shit, excuse my French, that, well, you know, the South is, you know, Georgia is so extra racist. It's like scary going down there. And I said, um, I was born and raised there. And I said, I'm more nervous driving my car in Los Angeles with the LAPD. Yeah. You know, growing up in Georgia, we heard about the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department. So they were completely dismissive of that. Then the UK dude said, well, you know, we don't have to deal with these things here. This doesn't happen in the UK. And I, I'm like, I just seen this movie. And I said, well, maybe you should see this film because, you know, police brutality does it. They may not shoot you, they beat you, you know, because there are fewer guns in the UK. But but it was it was so infuriating because basically they were telling completely dismissive. And I I, I kind of stepped, I'm like, okay, well, clearly I can't tell you nothing. But that film has gotten a lot of funding. It happens all the time. And you know, people plan to tell you about your narrative and you're sitting there thinking, like, okay. Um, <laughs> but it's also of where we've been raised in a world that constantly tells people that majority rules, right? And democracy is And if the majority of people say something, then it must be right. And so when you're a minority at times in the spaces, it's, I guess it's how do you, you know, you, you're caught between representing the world as you know them mm -hmm. um, and um, making the world understandable to the people with the power. Right. And then it becomes like, how do you tell the majority that they don't know? Because, you know, it's okay to not know, but it's okay to not know that you don't know. Exactly. And they don't acknowledge that they don't know. Yeah. They think they know every damn thing. You know, I was recently in a situation where the producer was literally leading me down the rabbit hole with uh, how the characters were being represented in a film. And even though I was the only person in the room who was remotely from the culture, I was the person least listened to. Mm. And... And I was the writer and director, so I saw myself now in a position where I was going to be making a film that was completely misrepresenting African women, potentially put me in the claws of Black Twitter, and I had no power to say no, because the majority were right, right? So if I kind of kept on saying, well, that's wrong, I was somehow difficult. And, and it was a kind of these or, or aggressive. Or aggressive, you know? <laughs> and there was one day when I literally had to spend a couple of hours putting together a mood board to show that all Africans do not look alike. <gasps> because they were trying to interchange. Well, my act, well, the actors in the film are supposed to be from East Africa, from the Horn of Africa. And they got me all these headshots of Nigerians to cast because she was very obsessed with them having Scottish accents, even though the script does not call for a Scottish accent. I'm black, I'm of African descent, I live in Scotland, I have for 14 years and I do not have a Scottish accent. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So black people do exist in Scotland without Scottish accents. And even when I was saying, these women do not look like they're from the Horn of Africa, it didn't matter to her. And I was being forced to do it. And I'm thinking, there's no African or even there are white people who are well-traveled who are going to look at that film and believe that any of those women are from a Horn of Africa. Thank you. And I was being told that it didn't matter by everybody in the room who was not African. Wow. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I just don't, you know, we, I think we've all experienced that to some degree. Sometimes they want you there for like the window dressing. I'm like, oh, look. Yeah. I'm going to... Um, paraphrase or misquote James Baldwin, like, here is our Negro. And you're like, you know, I am not your Negro. <laughs> no, but I feel that, and I always say that with diversity in the UK, at least from my experience so far, I feel like people are very comfortable with diversity in how people look. 
Right, but not in think. They're not diversity in perspectives. We're happy to have you in the room for as long as you come in and echo what we say. Bring yourself, but don't bring your perspective. Thank you very much. That's an impossible road to navigate. Yeah, and for us, it's harder because it's public money. I don't mind if you do that in a private company where you are financing. But for us, a lot of these funders are funded from the public purse. And so when you have these gatekeepers with a sense of entitlement and a belief that they're the norm and the rest of us are the exception, and we have to come in there and do things their way or tell stories their way, as opposed to come in and also have the support to tell stories that we want to tell, that's, that's problematic because they're pretty much taking ownership of something that's not theirs. Not theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to kind of go back a little bit to the race in the UK. And one thing I learned from that film, um, Generation Revolution, was that there's this um, theory or concept of called political blackness that is unique to the UK. I was I was told like you could kind of explain that to our audience and then also like talk about how does that manifest today? Um, well, I remember when I was in law, when I was working in-house at Birmingham City Council, um, during my my induction, <laughs> I was given a pamphlet that defined black, the government's definition of black, and it said black is everybody who is um, of African, Asian descent, and now also includes asylum seekers and refugees and people from the Balkan region. So that was when the Bosnian War was going on. Okay, so this is in the 1990s. Yeah. And that was when I realized that Black in Britain was synonymous with disadvantage. Mm. It wasn't about your skin color because, you know, people from the Balkans were not Black, right? No, they were not. <laughs> they were not Black. But the government's definition considered them Black. And so there's this thing where we get grouped into this, you know, we're grouped with every other minority. Everybody who is not white is suddenly black. And so they use terms like people of color, ethnic minority. Now we have Bane, you know, black and minority ethnic. And, 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 and so black is very much seen as a political term. And, and it can be a bit of a, it can be a bit of a, I don't even know how to describe it because, because there's also discomfort with talking about race. Because you've got to remember that as well that in the UK, we have a different problem. We have an ingrained class system. Yes, yes. Because of the monarchy, right? You know, I still find it amusing that in the UK, when people are introducing themselves, they will say things like, I am working class, you know, or I am, mm. or, I am posh, you know, and, and, and they're proud of it or they're self-depreciating about it. But it's like, right. you know, people are famous, like, I'm a proud working class person, you know? And then if you're black, of course, they assume that you're working class. And if you say things like, well, I'm not working class, then that's also offensive because who are you trying to not be a part of us? And you're thinking, yeah, but I'm not. Yeah, like you denied your experience. Yeah. You're not proud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it can be, you know, it can be um, a bit of a, I should say, mindfuck. Because again, like for me, I spent a lot of my um, formative years in both East and West Africa where mm -hmm. my race was not a thing. So I grew up being very unaware of my race. I was very aware of my gender because I was a girl in African mm -hmm. communities where people prefer boys and I was an only child, which amplified the fact that I was a girl even more. Um, but race was just not a thing. So coming back to finish um, school and then sort of then being thrown into this UK definition of black. Mm. And it was a bit, I still don't think that... Um, that I understand it or I get it. It's a country that's struggling 
to, to, to acknowledge its part. Right. And therefore, wants to sweep the conversation under the rug in a way and just not address anything. And so you have all these different black and brown groups trying to figure out the definition or put forward their own definitions and stuff. Yeah, but it, it can really grow. It can, um, there's this thing of where if you identify, if you're affected by racism, you're politically black. And then, you know, if you go to the Balkans or Russia, you know, there's a lot of racism against black people. Right. So in the UK, suddenly telling me that we're all the same. If for me, it's a bit like, mm, no, no, because we don't get treated the same. Yeah, black people, you know, if I go to Asia now, you know, there's a lot of anti-blackness, you know, in the Arab world, there's a lot of anti-blackness. So suddenly in the UK, grouping all of us together and assuming that an Asian in position is going to, prioritize the wellness of a black person for me that's a bit like mm, i'm not quite sure that that's true yeah that's not really probably gonna happen yeah but but that's that's still the idea that as long as you're affected by racism you're black you know you're, if you're advantaged you're black and i don't and i don't think that's true right yeah because there we all have unique experiences yeah, and there's a way we could we could support each other and also acknowledge our unique experiences, and that seems to be the piece that that's missing. Yeah, because there was a time a couple of years ago during Black History Month when two Asians were put as like the poster boys. It was Zayn Malik from One Direction and Sadiq Khan, who is now the the mayor of London. Okay, and you're looking. Yeah, and they were kind of like you know the faces of Black History Month, and it's like mm, yeah, but they're not black. <laughs> <laughs> but they're political black. When, when is Black History Month in the UK? It's in October. In October, okay. So I actually want to get back to your movie a little bit. So like, where are you in the production process? How is that going? What do you need to get it done? Uh, we are in, hopefully, final stages of post-production trying to lock the picture because once such flight happened, it didn't make sense to lock a film that had not dealt with um, police brutality in the present day. Right. Because it just kind of felt like if we're going to talk about police brutality in a film that's coming after 2020, we probably needed to address 2020. Yes. So so we just went back and did some additional filming. Because also prior to 2020, everybody was telling me that it was very French. It was a small film. It was a local thing. Because of course, you know, police brutality only happens in America, right? <laughs> of course. So when um, when George Floyd happened, I mean, and it's sad that it took a, a man to die in such tragic circumstances for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, Europe's eyes opened up to police brutality and the fact that it was also happening on their doorstep. So I was then getting all these messages from sales agents kind of going, so why are you with that police brutality talk? And I'm thinking, which one? The one that you had told me was just for French TV. And so we kind of realized that suddenly the issue had become a bit more mainstream. Mm-hmm. And there was now room for looking at police brutality outside America and also talking about it on European, on our doorstep. Um, so we then went back and did some additional filming. So hopefully, you know, we're aiming for the second quarter of this year to just be complete. And then the next stop will be just film festivals. So it's just kind of trying to get to hopefully the right programmers so we can get, we can get the film seen. Yeah. Who are some of the your protagonists in film that you feature? Um, so we've now featured Asha Traore, who is the sister of Adam Traore, who was probably, who is probably the George Floyd of France. Okay. Um, and so obviously her life was really changed when her brother was murdered. And so she's now become an activist. And I think she was given an award by BET last year as well. Yeah, for the experience work that she's been doing. We featured, of course, Chuck D was one of the early interviewers because of course my film, Born in New York, Raised in Paris, it looks at how African-American culture empowered the Black French to, um, to almost kind of find their voice and highlight 
the struggles that we're facing, right? So it kind of just opposes the two um, communities. So we start off from World War II, which is when the African-American culture first became mainstream in France. Yeah, because of the after Black soldiers were there, and then, you know, the all these, like, artists, Black artists, jazz musicians and writers who, like, moved to France. France, yeah. Yeah, and so, permanently or temporarily, yeah. yeah. It was the African-Americans who brought jazz to Europe. And of course, jazz is now like the biggest genre in France. Um, so we've kind of started off from that point of time, showing how the African-American culture came to France. Because of course, because the Harlem Health fighters did not lose soldiers during the war, France still kind of rates them very highly because they see them as people who were very crucial in helping them to win the war. And so... African-Americans are revered in France, whereas the Black French are given the opposite treatment. Yes, yeah, that that American exceptionalism. Yeah. I mean, but I've, I've found that when I've traveled, yeah. you know, and to other places, because I, I, I know that I get treated better than some folks, some Black folks who are like born and raised in those countries. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's uh, unfortunate, like, truth. It's true. So like when I'm in France, as much as I want to practice my French, I speak English because when I speak English, you think I'm American and I get much better treatment. When I speak French, you think I'm Cameroonian. And then suddenly they treat me like a local. And so it's sad, but it happens. And um, right. So the film kind of explores that. So of course, it meant that even in the 80s, when Mitterrand became president and wanted uh, some diversity, he went for African-American music as opposed to music from the Africans who were already in France. And so in, in the 80s, that music was hip hop. And so hip hop was revived in France at a time when America was still trying to ban it. The, for you young people, Google NWA and Tipper Gore and Al Gore and like NWA um, was like for that song, Fuck the Police. Um, they were like, when they were traveled to cities throughout the country, there were some cities where the police, would, they, they could sing the song, but they couldn't say the fuck part. But if they did, they were arrested. Yeah. yeah it's a whole, whole thing. Yeah. So like, you know, the very first hip hop, hip hop TV show in the world was not in America. It was in France. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was, it was in France. We featured like the host of that show as well. And it was the- What was the name of it? Hip hop spelt in France, in French. It was H-I-P-H-O-P, which is H-I-P-H-O-P. Um, so it's like an abbreviation, um, and that came on TF1, and it was that show and the success of it that actually led to UMTV raps. It's kind of tracing that history and how the Americans influenced France, um, you know, how hip hop then became um, celebrated, but of course, initially it was American hip hop. And then once the French kids began to learn English to understand the lyrics, they then began to see the similarities between the, you know, life in Brooklyn and life in the suburbs in Paris. And then they imitate the genre, but rapping about stuff that was going on in their localities. And then it grew popular and that led to the politicians clamping down and, and all of that. So it's kind of really tracing that and how the, yeah, and how the music just kind of kept on growing even though in the midst of all the adversity, but also juxtaposing the music with the real life, like showing the real life that this music was trying to highlight. Politicians were clamping down on instead of listening to, and how it led to like the, you know, one of the most, probably the biggest riots in France is history, which was the one in, you know, in 2005, when the boys were killed because they were, they saw the police and their instinct was to run. And when um, scaled offense, it was actually the electrical grid. And the police were heard saying on their radio, they will never get out of their life. 
and they could have switched off the grid, save the boys, and they didn't. And so two of the boys were basically electrocuted to death. And then that led to the probably the biggest riots in the suburbs that France has ever seen. So it's kind of showing, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, the music was warning and we're showing what the music was warning about. The politicians were pushing back instead of listening and just how the music was really reflecting what was going on in society and how people were feeling and just to where we are to today with the, you know, George Floyd happening and, you know, it turning into now a massive um, global issue. And, but at the same time, the diaspora is now more connected than ever. And that's actually, I think, why Black Lives Matter blew up the way it did because we were all on the internet. We didn't have to wait for Fox News or BBC or CNN. Mm-hmm. We could talk to each other. We could talk to each other, yeah. This fall, I was doing, um, meeting with filmmakers, um, for Docs by the Sea, which is a film festival that happens in Indi- Indonesia. And um, a filmmaker, like we were going over his project and I was like consulting with him and giving him ideas and stuff, you know, and kind of teaching him, of giving like a quick tutorial of like the fundraising landscape in the US. And he said to me like the end, um, he, like, he thanked me for everything. And then he said, um, uh, I just want to know, I want, just want to let you know that we stand in support with you with, with Black Lives Matter. And um, I started crying. It was, it was like the first time I cried. I've been like, kind of like been pissed off about everything, but it was the first time I cried. And the reason why, because like uh, he, he was so sincere and heartfelt, but also I have been dealing with having, having to have a lot of conversations with like white filmmakers who we're trying to capitalize, we use that word on the moment. And like, so, like asking me, like me want to meet with me say, hey, how, how can I capitalize on this moment? You know, because I have a black person in my film and you know, and black lives matter. And I'm like, it, it was so infuriating, but you know, as part of my job, I'm like, okay, let me, I have to kind of rein this in. And I would say things like, um, well, why, well, I said, well, black and brown people get killed every day in the United States by the cops. Like, why does this matter to you? You know, and they were like, oh, well, you know, but it was like just this really creepy ass disconnect. There, there is, and it's the fact that people see it as a story, you know, and, and they see this, yeah. yeah, or something like, because like, nice, like diversity is in, you know, like, bring us your black stories, and you're just kind of like, um, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a trained on a runway, you know, it's, and then what mm-hmm. happens tomorrow when diversity is out, you know, it, you right. Know, you know, because what we really need is a is a is an infrastructural change, a systemic change where all voices are given the opportunity to be heard. But yeah, it, it's been a bit of a, and I've seen it. Like now, I remember, like I set up my company 10, 11 years ago, um, Polka Dot Factory, soon to be called Republic of Story. I already have a trademark because I'm sort of expanding on, on what we're doing. So it's really going to be all about story and become more platform agnostic but I remember setting up that company because almost every major company in Scotland when I graduated liked my ideas but wanted to change my protagonist white like all of my films were very local they were set in Scotland inspired by my experiences and everybody wanted my protagonist to be white and so I then kind of thought okay it looks like I'm gonna have to learn and then when you sort of said no because they they kind of go we're giving you feedback right and then feedback is kind of like well so like, for example, I had one called Two Weeks in Lagos. And Two Weeks in Lagos was somebody of Nigerian descent who had been living in Scotland for the long time and then goes back home for a wedding and somehow has to reconcile this, you know, the cultural duality. And I was told it was a lovely idea. And, you know, Nigeria is a country we're curious about, you know, this will sell well, 
but can he have um can he have a girlfriend that goes with him and then we see the wall through her eyes and i was like i'm not trying to do a culture clash comedy this is about diaspora and person reconciling with their identity and they were like well, it's still the same you know it'll still be called two weeks in lagos we'll still be in lagos for two weeks but it's just it through somebody else's eyes and i'm thinking i'm not interested in that gaze on nigeria you know it's um, but then when you say that then you become difficult to deal with right you know and, and you're just kind of like eh, no so i kind of got tired of hearing that and i thought okay I'm just gonna to have to set up a company and learn how to run the, a film business so I can build an infrastructure over the long term so I can tell these stories that I want to tell from the perspective that I wanna tell them on. And then 10 years later, I've learned enough about the business to go back to writing and directing. And the same people are kind of going, well, why is she writing, directing and producing? You know, Because now diversity is in and they want me to go to their companies with my stories. And I'm thinking I've spent 10 years learning how to do this. Now you are paying catch up and now you want my slate. And then now you're trying to tell me, well, you're a writer director. You shouldn't be doing anything about producers. Like, no, you want to own the intellectual property because now you think it's valuable. Right. For the moment. For the moment. For the moment. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. The same ideas that you're now coming to me for is the ones that I had five, 10 years ago that you're telling me to change. So what's changed? Nothing's changed. I know that you're not interested in the perspective. You're interested in the fact that you think you can make money from that. So what happens if the, if the tide changes tomorrow and you can no longer make money from them? What am I going to be doing? Well, I also wanted to ask you about um, your work at the London Film School. So um, I had the, the pleasure and honor of being invited by Victoria to mentor um, one, of their, one of the students um, for, I think it was like what, a few months. Yeah, it was, it was for probably three months when they were doing their dissertation. Yeah, they're working on their dissertation and really advised them on um, the, you know, the, the grant writing process, but also, I mean, it was just, a, it was like a really wonderful experience. So I, I thank you for that opportunity. Natalia, Natalia James, Natalia Romero James, yeah, from Colombia. And she's working on a documentary that I hope she goes ahead and makes. That's the one that you mentioned her on. Because she's just very untalented, but also very humble. And I don't think she realizes how good she is. So she is and yeah. she's very conscientious about the story that she's trying to tell. Since she's looking at women throughout, quote unquote, Latin America, um, South and Central America, showing women in different countries who and showing how they're com combating of stereotypes in their own ways. I'm saying is the fact that, you know, the Latino women is the supposedly sexy, feisty, that's kind of what she's trying to combat and just kind of showing the different facets of Latin American women, which I think is a very brilliant, very simple, but very brilliant idea. And I think it will, it will be very effective when she's done, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I know, I, I mean, the great thing about like being in this field, like even the, the, as someone who has like knowledge of this field is it's a, it's actually, a, it's an educational exchange. So yeah, I'm conveying my knowledge, but I'm also learning so much about like women in these different parts of the world. And um, and and I think because it's also, I mean, this is like the the good thing about being new to something is because yeah, we can ask questions of people who like who are kind of like live in that world to kind of help them think about their stories afresh. Uh, there's a documentary I want to work on at the moment, which is you know set in in Freetown in Sierra Leone. And you know, most producers I've pitched it to love it. Then they start trying to shape it for me. And, <laughs> and then that's where it gets people 
dramatic. And that's when I'm like, okay, I'll give you a call and I just never call them back because I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll think about that, click. I'm going to have a discussion with you and then you call me difficult because I say to you what you're saying is not correct and borderline offensive, right? So I'd rather you just say, oh, I never heard from her again because then there's nothing to go by. But it's the thing where once they start trying to shape it and, you know, and then they sort of say, yeah, but, you know, you understand this bit, but for the people who are watching and understanding, we have to break it down. And then they sort of start taking you on this journey because, again, at times as well, especially with, with Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of the issues are, as a result, direct result of the post-colonial, you know, hangover. But there's nothing that I find a lot of British people hate doing than acknowledging the damages of colonialism. And so once you want to start talking about it, like somebody wanted to, there was a film that somebody asked me to co-produce, which is about hip hop in America and the fact that a lot of the older rappers are poor. Like, the, you know, the like really like the sort of grassroots old school underground guy. Yeah. And they're talking about like the fact that some of these younger rappers are making a lot of money. And then I sort of said in the meeting, but that's because of white America, like it's capitalism. You know, these the guys talking about holes and guns and this and that are the ones that the, rep, the, the record labels promote because they were like, you know, hip hop in America's died. There's no more conscious hip hop. I was like, no, there's conscious but they're just not getting And then, you know, there was that golden age, I call that golden age of hip hop in the 90s where you could turn on the radio and hear everything. So you heard your NWA and your quote unquote gangster rap, but you also had like De La Soul and just this, the whole gamut, you know, and a tribe called Quest and, you know, Salt and Pepper, like er everything. But the, the music companies like chose to like target and, um, and hype up certain types of rap. Yeah. to make it commercial and before i knew it that um they just stopped talking to me about it and the documentary is going ahead and they're basically blaming the greed of young african-american rappers as the reason why the older conscious hip-hop is dying and there's no mention of american capitalism white capitalism and how it exploited and profited Black music. And so that's the thing. Like, like when you start talking about the problems in when you start trying to make those films and you sort of give like a rounded view of the post-colonial hang-ups, and then suddenly they're like, oh yeah, well, no, why don't we just blame it on the dictator? You know, they love this word with the African president, the dictator, you know, the military dictatorship. And you're like, I grew up under military dictatorships and I love them because the democracy is actually quite corrupt. Because democracy day in Africa is a numbers game and people vote based on their tribes, not based on, you know, economic standpoints or ideologies. And so then you, you like, they, they, they always try and um, there's always, at least the people I've worked with, there's like this um, effort to contextualize stuff the way they understand it. And that always frees up, you know, UK and France from any responsibility for West Africa. So it's, yeah, so it, yeah, when you're doing docs in, in Africa, because again, a lot of the doc funding comes from Europe, it's hard because if you could fund documentaries in Africa, fine. But then if you have to come to the, all these European forums and stuff, then it becomes just super hard. It becomes super hard to tell African stories authentically. You moderated the panel for the Rotterdam documentary film festival and okay i want to i want to ask you to speak more on this quote that i'm about to read which is your quote festivals and labs tend to be a signaling point for financiers so a lot of filmmakers spend a lot of our time trying to get onto a list scheme lab or festival just so we can be taken seriously because these institutions are the signposts for a lot of different places you know because in europe there's been this conversation for 
the longest time, you know, when I was going to film school in 2006, they were talking about diversity and we're still talking about diversity. Yes, <laughs> we like to talk about it, like to talk about it. Uh, 2020 is the first year I believe that maybe some things will be done. I just hope they last. Um, so the idea then I guess was bringing forward together all these European funders to talk about how they could be more inclusive. But the, the problem is, and I don't know that it's a problem, it's, you know, we're in an industry that's very risk averse, right? So when people are looking for somebody to fund, they're generally looking for somebody with buzz, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. So if we're applying for something and I say that I was in the Sundance Labs versus somebody else who has a script that has had no other industry brand acknowledgement, automatically somebody's going to think that I am more investable than that person, even though I may be a bad writer not as good a writer as the other person. Yeah, because not everything that plays at Sundance is good. I'm- not at all. Like I've seen a lot of these films that come out of these labs and you're like, I can do that. <laughs> and so, and I find like, therefore, when you, there's like an expectation that you have to do certain, you have to go through a pathway, right? There's a certain way to have a film career. You know, when you come out of film school, you get on a lab, you do a short, your short goes to an Ailey's festival. From that Ailey's festival, you get development funding to write your feature, you go to a lab and then from the lab you go to IFP week or you know one of the market and then from there you get finance and if you're doing a co-production there's you image funding and creative europe and automatically a distributor will take you seriously then your film comes out it's likely to premiere at one of the top five festivals and usually it was weinstein who would pick you up <laughs> you know what i mean there's that, there's that trajectory and so even though the market has opened up and digital technology has made it much easier for people to make films, if you just pick up a camera and go off and make a film and get it financed with crowdfunding or you know family and friends, and it's a good film, and then you go on Film Freeway and spend another couple of grand getting to film festivals, chances are you'll be rejected from everywhere because nobody knows who you are. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. And like when I would advise on filmmakers, particularly who would say, you know, I would, well, everybody says they want to get into the Sundance. And, um, and my, my first thing I would tell them was, tell them as well, you know, it's incredibly competitive. Also your fit, your film may not be a fit for Sundance. Um, but you know, if that happens to be your goal, and like you have no um, experience in like these this this top quote unquote top tier documentary world, then you need to get somebody on your team who has. Yes. You know because at least that will get your your thing a sec- second look. And I have advice filmmakers of that all the time because unfortunately that's the reality. Yeah, because that's the reality. That's the thing. I know filmmakers whose bio reads so like I remember when I went and I think it was when I went to Nigeria for the first time in a very long time. Like Nigeria has a way of checking you. Because I had the bio that's a very good bio in Europe, right? I came out of school, went into Balinale Talent, came out in residency, got development money from Screen Scotland, won a competition being run by Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, then got into, you know, Yelava, Imagine Producers, and I was on the Yave. And my Nigerian was looking at me like, yeah, but how many films have you made? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like what's, yeah. what's your what's your experience like this is cute but no. <laughs> if i say that anywhere in the uk or in europe people are like oh wow like you know she she's what watch right so, but that's the difference but like my friends in nigeria they were just going from one Hollywood film to another because for them it was just making films making 
comes, make it comes. But at the same time, if you say my name in places and you say their names, people are probably going to take me more seriously because of all these laps and things that I have been to. And so that, that was it's just kind of like, but then when you go to the festivals, like when we met, it was just me and you in the room, right? So it's just kind of like, if the black filmmakers are not getting into these film festivals, they're not getting into these labs where you're signposted as somebody valid to work with, then you're never going to get the chance to get the money because then you have to go to the pitching forums where they already know you from that lab. And then if they don't give you money from that pitching forum and you don't get to make the film, then you know, you're never going to get on the radar. Of, of somebody. So then you hear people kind of blaming their awards, like Oscar so white, Bats are so white. And I'm always like, it's not their fault because they're rewarding what got made. Yeah, I mean, that's the end. That's that's the end result. But there are all these things that happen on the way that perpetuate the system. Yeah, but the, the, the main pipeline are film festivals through the labs, the schemes, or their screenings. That's the thing. So when you're in development and you're going to look for early money, when you're halfway, you're coming to rough cut labs, when you're done and you're screening. And if their curation continues to look the way it does, that's where sales and distribution is going to pick up stuff from. And that's where then awards are going to pick up stuff from. Because again, with the awards, you have to have been exhibited somewhere. But how are you going to get exhibited if a distributor doesn't pick you up? How is the distributor going to pick you up if a sales agent doesn't pick you up? How is the sales agent going to pick you up if you're not at the markets? and the festivals that they go to to scout. So that's, that's the thing, it's just kind of like, well, let's start holding festivals accountable and less the award ceremonies because that's the pipeline where people are coming in and getting championed. If you champion a diverse range of stories, guess what? At the end, you're gonna have a diverse range of films waiting to be awarded. The, the head of the Oscars is not a magician. They're not Midas to suddenly kind of go, ooh, hey, 10 black films. Like they were never in the system. They, were, they never had a chance. Victoria reminds us of the importance of being specific when it comes to diversity and inclusion initiatives. When organizations describe themselves as having a mission focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, or anti-racism, be critical and ask questions. What do those terms mean to them? Have they made a connection between the belief and the practice? Are they happy for you to be in the room, but are resistant or even hostile to your perspective? Is your perspective labeled as difficult or aggressive when in reality, what is difficult is dealing with the aggression from those rooted in colonialism and paternalistic ways of being? Because it's not just an issue of who's telling whose stories, but when given the opportunity to tell one's stories, there's an issue of sometimes being told by folks from outside of those communities what those stories should be. And it can be quite mad. Well, like many of us, Victoria is not only a survivor, but she is also one who is thriving by creating work and community that centers Black filmmakers. We'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of George Floyd, whose murderer was found guilty this week, and also to Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, and Micaiah Bryant. We and our stories are not moments to be stared upon or consumed. If you are a creator who has a stance of needing to capitalize on these stories, which was a conversation I unfortunately had to have with too many outsiders last year in the wake of everything that happened, then you are absolutely the very last person who needs to be telling the story. Just get out of the way. Thank you so much for listening today. In our next episode, we'll be back in the U.S. and headed south to Miami to chat with educator, filmmaker, writer, photographer, and mom, April Dobbins. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. 
when you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember... Keep telling your stories. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and the Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.